Oh man, already in. Oh, whew, technical difficulties. Um, my name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC, and I would love it if you would go to God with me in prayer before we get into His Word. Father God, we are so grateful for this time that you have given us to study your word, to apply it to our lives, to enrich our lives. God, I just ask as we study your scriptures that you would help to open our hearts, to know you, to have a relationship with you, to have a relationship with your word, and and apply it to our lives and be the kingdom citizens that you want us to be. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help to make my words clear and concise, that I would handle your word faithfully and properly. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice. And it's in his name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, we are going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 12 this morning. And as we've been going through the book of Philippians, kind of methodically, kind of slowly, we've just been kind of looking at the text with a microscope, verse by verse. And we're going to continue doing that until we get all the way through the book. And so, if you have your Bibles, I would love if you would open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12. Verse 12 says, So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. Or your might say fear and trembling. It's this, it's this phrase that gets used in the Old Testament quite a bit and, and a little bit in the New Testament that just describes the proper standing before the almighty sovereign God. Fear and trembling, awe and reverence, recognizing the supreme authority of God. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, awe and reverence. And this is, this verse is probably on the top 10 list of most misquoted, cherry-picked, pulled-out-of-context Bible verses of all time. Like, if I was going to put a list, it would absolutely make the top 10. This is one of those verses where either A, we read that phrase, continue to work out your salvation, and we say, huh, that's weird, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and then we just breeze on past it and never ask any questions. Or, some people will take this verse and they'll say, aha, I've got it. See, this is proof here that you're not saved by God's grace. You need to work your salvation. You need to do good works in order to be saved. That's how this verse gets treated. And there's a a phrase. I didn't come up with this phrase. It's a good tool to have when you're reading Scripture. And the phrase is this. Never read a Bible verse. What I mean by that is, Never just read one verse and pluck it out of the Bible and then build your theology on that. Because it doesn't work. So don't read a Bible verse. Read the passage that it's in. Read the book in its context. We have, a, we have to recognize the fact that the Bible is a book that is written in a specific place in a specific time with specific authors who the Holy Spirit is inspiring, and a specific audience. We have to understand that whenever we read Scripture. There's a, when I think about other faith groups and, and religions and their holy books, the story of how a lot of other religions, how their holy book came into being is something like this. 
Um, guy goes into a room, it's a locked room, nobody's around, and, and the power of God just pours on him these timeless words that he writes down verbatim, word for word, like he goes into this trance state and writes the book, and boom, we have a holy book. That's, that's fairy tale stuff. Our Bible didn't come into being that way. Our Bible came into being in a real place in history. That's important. In fact, I think it actually lends credibility to the Bible. It's not written in such a fairy tale fashion where somebody just went into a trance and boom, the, the books, the words just came on the page. It's written in a context. So let's, let's look at the context of this verse. What has Paul been talking about this entire time in the book of Philippians? He's been talking about unity in the church. Who has he been talking to? Verse 1, from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ. Did you catch that? The saints, the holy ones? Paul is writing to a church and a group of Christians who are already saved. That's important. Paul has spent this entire time talking about unity. He's been talking about his time in prison. He's been talking about how the church is going to function if Paul happens to not get out of prison. Those are all context clues behind this verse. Another context clue here, and this doesn't come out in the text very well, but when he says, work out your salvation, that word there is in the plural in the original language. So if, if Paul was from the south, he would say, work out y'all's salvation in fear and trembling. Paul wasn't from the south, he, so he wouldn't have said that, but that's, that's the phrase. And so if we put all of that together, I can tell you one thing. This is not a verse that's talking about what must an individual person do in order to be saved. And I can say that pretty confidently because nowhere before here and nowhere after here is Paul talking about an individual salvation. It's just not the topic of what he's discussing. But when we pluck that out of context, what we do is we take our own thoughts and our own worldviews and we rewrite the Bible in God's image. Paul's talking to the plural. He's talking to the church. He's talking about unity, not individuality. Paul is saying to the church, work out your collective deliverance, your salvation as a church in fear and trembling, in awe and reverence. He's helping to answer the question, what is this church going to look like if Paul doesn't get out of prison? That's why he's been encouraging them to, to be united around the gospel. This phrase, work out your salvation, is not a verse that says, do work so that you can be saved without God. It's Paul's way of telling the church, continue to work through your salvation so that you can be saved without Paul. That's important. That's why he starts off the verse, just as you've obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. He's saying this is what you're going to need to do because you're not saved by Paul. You're not saved by men. 
work out your salvation in the absence of this person you thought was this great leader. And in verse 13, he says, For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. That word effort, it's the same root word as work out. So it's like Paul saying, continue to work out your salvation because God's putting the work in you. He says, it's not my church, Paul says. It doesn't matter whether I get out of prison and come and see you or not because it's not Paul's church, it's God's church. It's not Paul's work, it's God's work. That's the attitude we should have here. This isn't Ron's church. It's not Stu's church. It's not my church. This is God's church. There's another place in Scripture where Paul talks about this to the church in, in Corinth. He says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, Now I mean this. Each of you is saying, so he's talking about these quarrels that are happening in the church, and he says, Each of you is saying, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? Or were you, in fact, baptized in the name of Paul? We are not a church that's built around personalities. Paul was a big personality. You can read through his letters. You can just tell by reading them. He was a big personality, and when he showed up, you listened to what he had to say. And here in Philippians, Paul is explaining to them, we are not a church built around men. We are a church built around God. He says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Very hard, yeah. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. This, the word there he uses is fascinating. This is the same word that's used to describe the Israelites when they're wandering in the desert and they're grumbling against Moses. They're murmuring against Moses. He's signaling to the church that you, as the church, are the new covenant people. You are God's new covenant people. So don't do it like the first covenant people did, grumbling and murmuring in the wilderness. You saw how they did it. You saw how that worked out. You are the new covenant people, just like Ron was talking about. And what's fascinating, this is a little bit of a a tangent, but that's okay. There's actually a good chance that the church in Philippi didn't even catch that reference. They probably didn't even notice that that was a reference to the Old Testament. Because if you've Notice, we talked about this Tuesday in Bible study. This is one of the few books in the New Testament, if not the only one. Paul never quotes the Old Testament scriptures directly in the book of Philippians. That's weird. Remember, he's talking to this group of Romans. They're not Bible scholars. They're not Bible heroes who just know every bit of scripture left and right. And so Paul is explaining to the gospel to them in ways that they understand. Just sports metaphors and Roman metaphors and military metaphors. I found that fascinating, the way Paul does this. But Paul is comparing the church to the people of Israel, whether they notice the reference or not, and explaining how they need to be holy and set apart for God, just like God's 
covenant people Israel were. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. Children of God, blameless and pure. This is a description of what the church should look like. He says, without blemish. That's the word they would use to describe the lambs in the book of Leviticus who went out for slaughter. Spotless, without blemish. You would go out into your flock and you would pick the lamb who was set apart from the rest and that's the one you would give as an offering to God. And and Paul's saying, this is how we as the church should be. In the midst of a crooked and perverse society, your, your Bible might say generation. I don't have to tell you this. You don't need to read it in the Bible to know that we live in a, live in a crooked and, and perverse generation. You can go outside, you can turn on the news, you can see that. It's pretty plain as day, but the church is called to be this beacon of hope shining in the middle of that darkness. Like when somebody, when somebody comes into our church, if they walk into our building, if they interact with us, and they look at us and they say, wow, these guys are no different than anybody else out in the world, we have a problem. Or if somebody comes into our church and says, man, not only are these people no better than anybody else outside the church, but they're in some ways worse than the rest of the world. That's a big problem. How many times I've talked to somebody who is has been in the church situation and they've been around Christians and they get mistreated and and treated poorly and then they go home and they go down to the bar and they say, you know, well, at least the people at the bar are nice to me. At least the guys that I go hang out and smoke dope with would give me the shirt off their back if I asked for it. That's a problem. And the church in our culture today, I'm afraid, has this, this bad reputation of being a group of people who, you know, between a Christian and your buddies you go smoke dope with, I would rather hang out with them because at least they're going to listen to me when I have problems. At least they're going to give me the shirt off their back. Meanwhile, the church is looked at as seeing these people who are hypocritical, who are not standing out as a beacon of light in the world. The church needs to be a place where People of all shapes and sizes, of all backgrounds, tall, small, black, white, doesn't matter, can come here and feel welcome and comfortable and feel like, you know, man, I have a family here. I have a home here. And if we're doing it right, if we just so happen to be doing it right, our response should not be like, oh, yeah, we're a pretty good church. We got a pretty good pastor. We got some good leadership. Or, yeah, I've really been reading my Bible and I'm a pretty good Christian. No. Our response should be, it's not me. Because the one who's working the effort and the desire for his good pleasure is God. We can take all the blame and give God all the credit, and I'm okay with that. So how do we get there? How do we get to that point where the church looks like this beacon of hope? Well, we see the answer in verse 16. He says, by holding on to the word of life. Oh, man. 
Sorry, guys. By holding on to the word of life. So that on the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. By the way, this is more Roman metaphors that Paul's using. Running the race, acting as a laborer in the vineyard. He's describing the gospel in ways they understand. Hold on to the word of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what we anchor our church around. Not our preacher, not our building, not our leadership, not our songs, none of that. We anchor our church around God's word and nothing else. And if we don't do that, we will fail. If, if heaven forbid, if I walked out this door and got hit by a truck... I would expect next Sunday for somebody to come up here and read Philippians chapter 3. I'd be thinking about that. Because the church is not centered around people. It is the people and it's centered around the word of life. God's word is is how we, we anchor ourselves. And and I, and, and I want to say this, and I've said this a couple of times before, but I have this open invitation in our sermons, in my sermons, to disagree with me on anything I say. I welcome it. Because out of my 40 or 45 minutes of standing up here talking, the parts that you can take home and know for a fact are true are the parts that I'm reading out of this book, and the rest of it is just my opinion trying to work through it with you. There's about 20 verses in here that I'm reading that you can take home as truth, and the rest is just me trying to work through it with you. So I have this open invitation. Anything I say, bring your Bible out. Hey, you, you said something here. Uh, it, over here it says something different. Let's talk about it. Because we're not anchored around what I say. We're anchored around what God says. When you build churches around personalities, those churches will die. If your church is built around a personality, it is destined to fail because people come and go. Paul says, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering... On the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. And in the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. Paul's just happy he's had the opportunity to serve them. I'm just grateful that I had the opportunity to be poured out on you. If you... If you grew up doing sports or you like watching sports, I'm going to do a Paul thing. I'm going to use a sports metaphor because he liked to do that, so I'm going to do it too. There's a phrase in sports. Um, it's called next man up. I don't know if you've ever heard this from a football coach or a basketball team, baseball, whatever. Next man up is this philosophy that coaches will have in sports that says, we're not a team that's built around all-stars. We're not built around the starting quarterback. We're not built around the center on the basketball team. We're built around the plays and the team. And if that all-star gets injured 
or gets traded in professional sports, the next man is expected to step up into that position and execute that play just as flawlessly as the last guy did. Next man up. And so as we're reading here in Philippians, Paul is prepping them for the likelihood that he might not return, and he's giving them the next man up scenario. So verse 19, Paul says, Now I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. Again, remember, Timothy was one of the co-authors of this letter. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Timothy was one of the founding members of the church in Philippi. And Timothy was Paul's closer. He was his fixer. He was the guy that if a church needed help, he'd send in Timothy. He was the, you know, going back to the sports thing, when, when it's the fourth quarter and you're down and you need to send a guy in, he was the backup quarterback that Paul was like, get in there, do your work. And because that's who Timothy was and because he was one of the founding members of the church in Philippi, they would have been tickled pink just to have Timothy there in their presence. And so Paul is giving Timothy praise as the next man up for all of those attributes that we read about in chapter 2 and chapter 1. He says, others, verse 21, are busy with their own concerns, not those of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Timothy, on the other hand, he says, he's displaying that. He's not worried about himself. He's putting other people above himself. He's the kind of guy that you can trust He says, you know his qualifications. Like that of a son working with his father, he served with me in advancing the gospel. He says, like a son working with his father. So there's a thing in in Roman society, they had this thing called the pater familius. Um, Basically, the Potter Familius went like this. In your household, the head of the household was the father. And he was the one who everything routed through him. Your father was the one who decided how you worshipped. He's the one you imitated. He's the one that told you what to do, where to go. The Potter Familius in Rome actually had the ability to dissolve a marriage. Isn't that crazy? And if... The, if the father of the father was still alive, he was the head dog of the family. And so you imitate it through him. And in fact, Caesar would call himself the pater familius of all of Rome. Paul is describing Timothy here as a son working for his father, and he's leaning on that imagery. He's saying, you know, you trust me. You've displayed that you trust me. Well, Timothy's like my son, and he trusts me, so you can trust him because you trust me because there's that fatherly lineage. And it's kind of implied in there that both of them are acting and imitating Christ by acting like slaves. Because when he says he served with me in the gospel, that's the same root word, slave. He slaved with me. And Christ is imitating and obeying the Father of all of creation. So, 
Paul wants to send Timothy. He's giving him the nod. And in verse 23, he says, So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation, though I'm confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. So Paul gives Timothy all this praise, but then he's, he's like, for, for whatever reason, Timothy was unable to go. Maybe he had some work to do helping Paul in prison, work on his defense, or maybe it was in the church at whatever, whatever city that they were located in. It, something prohibited Timothy from being able to go up and talk to the church in Philippi. And so we have the next man up scenario. Paul says, okay, Timothy's not going to work. I can't come visit you. So verse 25, he says, but for now, I've considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother. Need. Epaphroditus was the one who was from the church in Philippi, had gone to visit Paul in prison, and so Paul says, I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you. And he heaps on him all of this praise. He's my brother. He's my co-worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's doing this thing where it's called, in, in Roman context, it's called a cursus honorum, which basically is, is a thing that in the military or senators would have a list of their accomplishments just rattled off, just like Paul did for Epaphroditus. So-and-so was, was a foot soldier, and then he was a centurion, and then he was a legion deputy, deputy commander, and then he was a legion commander. Just all of these accomplishments showing where they were. It was like this resume that you could have etched in stone. We actually do, the military does something very similar today. If you go to a, a change of command ceremony, the commander of the unit, they'll rattle off. You know, he was private so-and-so back in 1983, and then he transferred to this unit and was promoted and took charge. And it's just giving honor to that person. Politicians, they did something similar. First he was proconsul, then consul, then governor, then senator, then emperor. But look at the, look at the words that Paul uses to honor Epaphroditus. Brother, okay, that's good. Co-worker, laborer, fellow soldier, foot soldier, describing him like a private, like the lowest ranks. He's your messenger and minister. The word there means servant. Paul's giving honor to Epaphroditus by describing him in these lowly terms. Paul's ranking system is upside down. He says, this guy, he's great. He's, he's like a laborer. What? Oh, yeah, this guy, you should give him so much honor. He's like a foot soldier. He's like a servant. And you're like, well, well those, those aren't terms of honor. Those are low, humble terms. But he's imitating Christ. He's imitating the one who, though he was equal with God, took on the form of a man, not just a man, but a slave, not just that, but was obedient to death. The, the framework around we as Christians, how we should operate, is that upside-down ranking system. I feel like the only thing higher up, quote-unquote, that Epaphroditus could do is what if Paul would have called him a slave, right below servant. 
He's my brother, my coworker, my minister to you in need. It says, indeed, verse 26, indeed he greatly missed you all. And he became distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill he nearly died, but God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief upon grief. Grief on top of grief. So somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus traveled to fill, uh, the, the prison where Paul was and got sick. So sick that he was on his deathbed, malaria or something. And Paul says he was greatly distressed. If I was dying on my deathbed, I would be distressed about dying on my deathbed. Epaphroditus was distressed. Why? Because you had heard that he was ill and he didn't want the church in Philippi to be anxious. That's incredible. He's laying there about dead, and the only thing he can think of is like, oh man, I sure hope that the church in Philippi is okay. I, I sure hope that Lucius and, and Tom and whoever else, I, I'm so worried about them as he's dying. And Paul looks at that, and Paul says, that's leadership material. That's incredible, Epaphroditus. And so what he's doing is he's giving him the nod. He says, therefore, I am all the more eager to send him. Oh, man, I got way behind, guys. Oh, man. Sorry. He says, therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him. So that on the day of Christ, when you, or excuse me, so that when you see him again, you can rejoice and be free from all anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. He's giving him the nod. He's, he's saying like, Epaphroditus has got it. He's got the skills needed to lead this church. He can be the next man up. Give him honor. Give him the, what he deserves as a servant, as a slave, as a foot soldier. Not because of his personality, not because of his great public speaking skills or his knowledge of the Bible, because he's just such a Bible whiz. No, what does Paul give him the nod for? For his care and compassion for the church. That's the thing that Paul sees in Epaphroditus and is like, you know what? You got it, kid. Put him in. Put him in, coach. He's ready to play. He says, since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died, he risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. So apparently, somewhere along the way, the church in Philippi wanted to help Paul. They wanted to supply his needs, but they couldn't, whether it was a lack of resources or, or a lack of, of personnel or just inability somehow to help Paul out in prison. And Epaphroditus saw an opening and stepped up. He's like, I can help. I can serve. You need me to deliver a letter for you? I'll go, I'll go. And so Paul is giving this praise and, and saying, you know, Paphroditus, who, by the way, is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, and saying, yeah, this guy stepped up. He's got what it takes. 
And, I, and as I read this passage, I think about the situation that was going on in the church in Philippi. As I kind of wrap my mind around everything that was going on here, I wonder, like, are we a next man up kind of church? Are we the kind of church where each person is just so invigorated by the gospel that they're ready at a moment's notice? Yeah, I can stand up and I can lead some songs. Yeah, I can, I can stand up and read some scripture here. Yeah, I can, I can give my thoughts on communion. Yeah, I can come in and, and help set things up. I can serve. I'm, I'm ready to play, coach. Put me in. Like, are we that kind of church? We should be. Are we a church that's centered around the word of man? Are we a church that's centered around personalities? Where we're built around like, yeah, we got a pretty good preacher. Yeah, we got some good elders. Yeah, we got a good song leader. And and that's how we identify ourselves. That's where we root ourselves. Or are we a church that's rooted in the word of life? Because I tell you, if we're a church that's rooted in the word of life, all of the leadership could be gone tomorrow and we would still come in and we'd sing songs and we'd read scripture and we'd take communion and we would just be that kind of church. If the building burst into flames next week, we would still be the church. Not centered around leadership, not centered around personality, but the word of God. Are we a church who is using God's word to enable us to become a light in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation? Invested in God's word, devoted to God's word. Not working through our own skills and our own abilities, but using the word of life to make us into the light that the world needs right now. Not working through our own power, not working out our own ability, but understanding the fact that the one who is bringing in us both the desire and the effort for the sake of his glory is God. That's the kind of church we need to be. That's the kind of church Paul saw in Philippi, and that's the kind of church that we need to be. We pray with me? Father God, I, God, I just ask that you would give us the desire and the ability to be the kind of church that you want us to be. Father, I ask that you would help us from being led astray by personalities, being led astray by worldly things and, and leaders and, and all of that. And I would ask that you would just help us to be a church rooted in you and your son and your word. Help us to be the light shining in a dark, crooked generation so that when people see us, they see your son and they have hope. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. And on that note, I forgot to...